Hi, I'm Belle, and I'm um, reading the second reading, and it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's found on page 1052. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. For though I am absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about the one who has done this thing as though I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good, Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing writing you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greeder, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? But God judges outsiders. Put away the evil person from among yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter Clyde. Thanks, Belle. It's lovely to see you. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Before I preach this sermon this morning, someone said, oh, that's a pretty harsh reading. Uh, It is a really hard part of the scripture. I do pray that as I preach tonight, I would preach the truth, but preach that with love and with gentleness. So why don't I just pray that. Father, I ask that as your word is preached tonight, that you would uh, take it, uh, that you would teach us, that you would rebuke us, correct us, encourage us, inspire us. Show us Jesus again, please. And we pray that we might be a church uh, full of people who live lives worthy of the calling. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a quote on the screen by a guy called Billy Graham. He said, we are... We, the church, that is, we are the church, are the Bibles the world is reading. And we, the church, are the creeds the world is needing. And we, the church, are the sermons the world is heeding. How do you feel as you read that? As I read it, I was inspired. It's like, wow, what a privilege that we, the church, get to be a light for Christ, to, to commend Jesus to the watching world. What, what an inspiration that the people who might never walk into these doors, they can see Christ through us and in us. That inspires me. And then it overwhelms me. Because I'm not perfect. And you're not perfect. And we, the church, are not perfect, are we? Often the church really is very hypocritical, aren't we? And often the church is more like the world than we are like Christ, aren't we? But you know, in God's crazy wisdom, 
we the church are his vehicle to, to commend Christ to the watching world. And that is why our behavior matters. And that it, that's why it matters that we take sin in church very seriously. The way that we offend God seriously in this church. And that's why it matters that we have sort of discipline in God's church. Because we love Christ. And we want to be his body. We want to actually commend Christ to the watching world. So as you hear tonight's sermon, uh, please don't hear law. Please don't hear legalism. Hear grace and hear love. And hear identity. Because you won't understand this sermon tonight unless you understand who you are in Christ. Unless you understand who you are in Jesus, this sermon will make no sense at all. Let me try and show you. I want you to imagine that you are the eldest son of an Israelite family living in Egypt. So my name's Jacob and I'm the eldest son and I've got four younger brothers and I remember that night well. It's called the Passover and mum and dad all day they were hugging me and holding on to me. And mum was busy in the kitchen and she was uh, preparing this roast lamb and this weird bread with no yeast in it called unleavened bread. And, and dad was doing something even weirder. He was getting the blood of the lamb and with a, a paintbrush he was painting the blood on the doorpost. And, and we ate dinner and, and they kept on kissing me and hugging me. And, and as they put me to bed they wouldn't leave my bedside. And as night fell there was wailing and screaming throughout the whole of Egypt. I said, Dad, what's happening? And they kept on hugging me and hugging me and hugging me. And and as morning came, it's like they were just rejoicing. Why? Because I was alive. And all these other, other kids, all these other firstborn, they'd been killed, but I was alive. Because God in his kindness and God in his grace had had rescued us and redeemed us and saved us because we sheltered under the blood of the Lamb. We were the redeemed people. We were the saved people. And we got together and we celebrated. And every year we had a a, a party, a a festival called the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And for seven days before the Passover... We had to to sweep our houses and clean our houses and get rid of all the leaven and all the yeast because we were different. We were God's holy people. We were God's chosen people. We were different from the nations. And you know what? We wanted to live differently. That's why we kept the Ten Commandments, you know. Because we wanted to show how good our God was and what it meant to live as, as forgiven, redeemed people. And that's why we took sin seriously. Because we wanted to show the world that, that we are different. We are the redeemed people. We're the rescued people. We're the forgiven people. And that's why as a community, we took discipline seriously. Because we wanted to show the rest of the world that we are different. We're God's people. We're holy people. We're loved people. We're redeemed people. We're forgiven people. That's my story. Now read verse 7. See what Paul says to the church? You, the church, you are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Do you get it? We, the church, we are the unleavened. We are the redeemed people. Redeemed not by the blood of a lamb on a doorpost, but 
Because Christ is our Passover. The lamb has been sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And we are the unleavened. There should be no hint of sin, no hint of corruption, no hint of godlessness. So hunt it out. Go crazy. Sweep your church. Clean it. Deal with your sin. It doesn't belong here. Now, do you get it? The Lord Jesus Christ died, not just to forgive you of your sins, your past sins, but to make you a new people. And so not just for seven days of the year, but every day we have the privilege of living as redeemed people and living as forgiven people and living as different people. Because we're free to do that, aren't we? We're free from the slavery of sin and we're free to live as holy, redeemed, forgiven people. That's hard though, isn't it? Don't you find it hard to live as different people? Because our world, our our world is a sex-mad world, isn't it? It's hard to watch a movie without sex. It's hard to read a magazine without sex. And you walk down the street and there's adult shops and there's there's brothels. and It's a sex-mad world. It's also a very greedy world, isn't it? Here in Sydney where the rich get richer and they trample on the poor and everyone wants the next bigger house and bigger holidays. It's also a very idolatrous world. We idolise houses and health and fitness and food and family. And It's also a world marked by abuse where people verbally abuse and physically abuse and emotionally abuse. And that's the world that we live in. But we're different, aren't we? We're the church. Yeah, that's right. We're the global church where the pastor sleeps with his best friend's wife and you just pretend it hasn't happened and sweep under the carpet. We're the church where people can verbally abuse and and slander and steal and lie and rather than be disciplined, they just push from parish to parish. And we're the church which is under scrutiny by the Royal Commission. And at times it's deeply, deeply, deeply sad, isn't it? So let me ask you, what should you do, what should we do as a church when people are claiming to be Christians, claiming to love Jesus, but they are flaunting their godless lives in front of us? What should we do? Just pretend it's not happening and just sweep it under the carpet? What should we do when the Christian man or the Christian woman, they, they come into church and they sing the songs, they pray the prayers, but they, they're flaunting their, their sexual immorality? That's the word used in verse 1. The word is porneia, sexual immorality among you. It's a very broad word. It just means anything outside of that one man, one woman, antiquated thing called marriage. In this church in Corinth, there are men and women who claim to follow Christ, but they're flaunting their immorality. What do you do about that? Just love them? Just accept them? This passage is not just about sex, though. Look look down to verse 11. What do you do with the person who, verse 11, claims to be a believer but is greedy? What do you do about the the man or woman who walks into church by the bridge and, you know, they're obsessed with money? 
They just they lavish millions of dollars on, on bigger and bigger houses and bigger and bigger holidays, but they are, they're never generous at all. What do you do with those people? It's been said the most common and most destructive sin in the Western church is greed. What do you do with the Christian man and woman who is habitually idolatrous? They're putting all these things above God. Or verse 11 again, they are verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. What do you do with these people? Let me be very, very clear. We're all sinners, aren't we? I'm a sinner. And you're a sinner. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Put your hand if you're perfect. So this passage is not talking about the person like you or I who, who slips up. We give in to a temptation and we're racked with guilt and we run to the cross and we confess our sins. It's not talking about those people, those repentant sinners. And it's not talking about the person who is really grappling with a particular sin in their life. That, that they, they desire to change, they want to change. He's not talking about those people. He's talking about the, the men and the women who just don't care anymore. Their sin has become so normal. They, they live it, they parade it. There's no guilt, there's no repentance, there's no sorrow. So how should we respond to those people? So, see, my fear is that we still talk about tolerance and open-mindedness. And gentle warnings, or just just pretend it's not happening. But 1 Corinthians 5 talks about a word that we don't like, and the word is discipline. Here's the main point. Ongoing, outward, unrepentant sin in God's church must be disciplined. I've used that word ongoing. It's not not just a one-off thing. It's an ongoing thing. It's become your norm. It's become your lifestyle. I've used the word outward because it is visible. You know, the sin can be seen or the the sin can be heard. We're we're not sort of sin police who are trying to judge people's hearts. And I've used the word unrepentance because that's really important. When you refuse to let go of it, you you refuse to, to fight it. And if that's the case, we're called to discipline, aren't we? And again, if you know your Bibles... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is actually the last straw. You know, if you know your Bibles, it says, if a brother or sister is caught in, is caught in sin, what do you do? What's the first step? You meet with them one-to-one. And you sit down with them and you lovingly and gently seek to correct them. If they won't listen, you take two or three people. And you lovingly and gently sit down with the scriptures open and, and warn them and encourage them to, to change their ways. If they still won't listen, you, you get a slightly larger group. But if they still won't listen, that's the last straw when you take it to the church. But that should be the last straw, shouldn't it? There are, there are two sins in this chapter. See if you spotted them. The obvious one is in verse 1, the, the sin of the man living with his father's wife. That doesn't mean he's just lodging with her. It means that he's actually having an affair with her. He's in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. And that is just wrong. The Bible says it's wrong. Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22, it's a sin. And according to verse 1, even the pagan world, the Gentile world says that is wrong. 
That's the obvious sin. What's the second sin in, in, in this chapter? It's there in verse 2. And you, the church, are inflated with pride. You, God's holy temple, God's chosen people, rather than being repulsed by this, you, you tolerate it. No, you don't just tolerate it. You revel in it. You celebrate it. Don't you read that and think, what are they proud of? <laughs> what can they be proud of about a man having an affair with his stepmother? I was thinking this week, perhaps they were, perhaps they were proud of being this loving church. You know, we're the most loving church. God's the God of love and we just love everybody. If that's the case, well, yeah, God is a God of love. But what does God love? God loves his holiness and his name being honored and his church being seen as the bride of Christ. Perhaps they were proud of being, you know, not judging. And then when the church says, well, they're, they're two consenting adults. They can do what they like. Who are we to judge? Who are we to judge? We are the bride of Christ, aren't we? The redeemed people who are called to live holy lives. Or perhaps they were proud of being the affirming church. And the, the thing that the, the Bible affirms it is repentance and purity and holiness and change. See, the issue, we, we think, how could the Christian man do this? But Paul says the real issue is, how can we, the church, allow it to go unpunished? And Paul is horrified, isn't he, verse 2? He says, instead of being uh, fled with pride, you should be filled with grief. You should grieve and mourn over this. So that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Please note that discipline flows from grief. You mourn first and then you act second. As I said before, it should never get to this stage. If we as Christians as a church are taking godliness seriously, it should never get to this stage. Someone should have taken aside this man a long time ago. Uh, It wasn't my place to correct him, you say. Yes, it was. We're all called to correct each other. I didn't have a relationship with him. That's the 21st century thing. You know, I have to have a relationship with him first, and then I can say the hard thing. No, you don't. Open the Bible. Let the Bible do the hard work. I'll say it really clearly. If a, if a Christian man, a man claiming to be a Christian, is habitually, unrepentantly, in an adulterous affair, he needs to be corrected, doesn't he? If a Christian woman is unrepentantly, habitually slandering and gossiping and character assassinating and verbally abusing people, she needs to be corrected, doesn't she? So, verse 4, when, when you assemble as church, when you meet together as church, it's a public thing, it's not a private thing. This is not a church prayer meeting, it's a church discipline meeting. When you gather, there's no gossip, there's no hearsay. You you judge according to the facts. But when you assembled, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus, with my spirit and with the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ, turn the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. Before we deal with that, let me just urge you, if, if you are here tonight, 
and you're flirting with a particular sin in your life. And you've stopped repenting of it. You've given up a long time ago. Can I urge you to stop and change? Can I plead with you to repent? Remember who you are. You're a redeemed person. You're a holy person. And if you're here tonight and you know somebody well enough and you know that they are just habitually and unrepentantly grappling with this sin, it's still the most loving thing to do to take them aside and to warn them. So why do we do this? Number one, because we love the sinner. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That's the right motivation. It's love, isn't it? We love this individual caught in sin so much and we care for him or we care for her and we're concerned for their soul. We love them. And so we discipline them. That's what verse 5 is all about. Turn that one over to Satan. It's a harsh phrase, isn't it? He's not saying, go on, Satan. Get to work on him. What it is saying is is that the, the world is the sphere of Satan and the church is a sphere of the spirit. So take the person out of the sphere of the spirit and put them back into the world so that, do you see that verse 5? So that his spirit may be saved. You want him to wake up and go, oh, I've been so wrong. I, I, you want him to wake up and say, I'm so sorry, Lord, I've done the wrong thing and to come back into the church. It's the most loving thing to do, isn't it? With the last day in mind, it's more loving to send someone out of church for a short while to bring them to their senses and to see them for all eternity than to tolerate the sin now and to see them in in hell. Listen to Bonhoeffer. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It's a ministry of mercy, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship. I've only seen this happen once in my 15 years in ministry. It was in the UK and a man was in an adulterous affair with another woman at church. They were both married to other people. And they were warned once, and they were warned a second time, they were warned in a small group, and they were warned in an even larger group, and then it was brought before the church. And they left the church. But the man repented. It was about a year later he came back and was welcomed back into the fellowship as a repentant, forgiven sinner. And his marriage was restored. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? So we do it because we love other people. How can you not warn them if you really love them? And we we do it, number two, because we love God's church. Let me ask you, how are you feeling at this moment? A bit awkward? If your reaction right now is, Paul, this is terrible, this is unchristian, can I perhaps suggest that we've got a very individualistic view of church church is not just a place where you come and you meet with God and you do your church bit and you leave we're a community aren't we, we're a family we're a body, we belong to each other 
And that's the point of verses 6 and 7. Yeast permeates the whole batch of dough. Uh, like, Like a cancer. You can't see it. You might not feel it. But if cancer is left unchecked, you can remove the tumor, but the damage is done. It's spread. Same with sin. It's like yeast that permeates through the whole batch. So when I sin, you feel it. And when you sin, I feel it. Remember, God's church should be pursuing purity, but but sin corrupts the whole body. So verse 7, clean out the old yeast. Deal with our sins. The the radical remedy is, is isolation, is quarantine, is extraction. So suppose a man is known to be having an affair with another member of this church. If we were to say, oh, well, nobody's perfect, let's just sweep it under the carpet. I can guarantee you when the next affair starts, more people just turn a blind eye. And before you know it, that's just acceptable behavior. Or or take money. Now you've got the rich Christian who's driving the Porsche and doing the multi-million dollar renovations and absolutely no generosity whatsoever, all about self. If if we never say, you know, that's actually wrong... I can guarantee you that within five years, we just won't really bat an eyelid when, when nobody's generous. It's insidious, you know. And I just wonder whether we've lost that sense of corporate identity. You know those old sort of rope bridges where you've got the two wires and you, you walk across and it's all rattly. It's okay when it's just you walking across it, isn't it? But when there's the, like eight or nine of you walking across it, if one person starts to wobble, what happens to the bridge? The whole bridge wobbles. And I hope you love this church enough to say, this really matters. Number three, because we love God's world. Remember, we're the redeemed people and we're a light to the world. So let's read verses 9 to 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. But I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. He's saying, I'm not telling you to stop living in the world. I'm not telling you not to associate with people out there who don't claim to be Christians. But I am telling you, verse 11, don't associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, claims to follow Christ, who is unrepentantly, habitually, sexually immoral, etc., etc., etc. Verse 12 is a key verse. For, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside the church? I was thinking this week, we, we, we've got it all wrong, haven't we? We as a church are so good at judging the world, aren't we? You know, we judge the world on, on their moral standards, but they, but they don't claim to follow Christ. Uh, And we sit here in our little closed community and we tut-tut and say, oh, how could the world do that? Who are we to judge the world? Let God judge his world, yes. But we are called to judge within this this family, within this community. So if you're here tonight and you've got someone you work with who doesn't claim to be a Christian and and they are living with their, their partner, no? Invite them to dinner, befriend them, get to know them, uh, evangelize and share Jesus with them. 
If you sit next to a bloke at work and he's living in a gay relationship with his gay partner, embrace him, befriend them, invite them around as a couple, get to know them, don't judge them. But that's happening here in church. That's a different matter, isn't it? Look at verse 12. Don't you judge those who are inside. Number four, and lastly, we we do this because we love Jesus. Because he is our Passover. He has sacrificed himself. I love this quote. When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. That's why we do this, because... Jesus gave himself for us. It was Christ who made us pure. It's Christ who set us apart as his, his redeemed people. That's why we do it, because it costs God so much. I'll be really honest, I, I don't care so much about the name of a church. I don't care so much about the institution called the church. But I do care about Christ. I do care about my saviour. And when his name is maligned and his, his name is scoffed and mocked because of the behavior of us, the church, I care about that because he's our Passover lamb and he's the one who loved us enough to die for us. I know this is a hard sermon to preach and a hard sermon to hear, but it's actually a beautiful sermon because we are the redeemed people, aren't we? We're the forgiven people. All all God's telling us to do is to live like that. To live as the redeemed people. Let's do that, shall we? Let me pray. I'm going to pray and then we're going to say this confession together. Father, we ask and plead with you that you would show us again how much you love us, what it cost you to rescue us and redeem us and forgive us. Help us to see Jesus and to fall in love with Jesus again. Thank you that you made us a community of people who are redeemed. Please help us to to love each other well. And Lord, when we do sin, help us to run back to Calvary. And help us to love each other enough to to correct and warn each other. 